Hi, everybody, and welcome to Lost Explorers. My name is J. David Osborne, and that is Chris Sacknesson. Chris, how are you doing this evening? Butterscotch brownies, Sawtooth Mountains, Bulgarian radio. David, I'm really, really good. I'm really <laughs> good. I'm uh, I'm experimenting and uh, making new stuff, and I had a really exciting moment. <laughs> I uh, decided I was going to make a pitch to join the local Elks Club, which is in itself exciting because it's right on the main drag Nevada way, which is part of old Route 66 terrain, right across from a classic uh, A&W root beer, an original A&W root beer franchise stand, you know? And while talking to the Elks, I, I wasn't consciously planning on this, but I did say, at one point, people of our ilk mm. in the Elks Club. <laughs> and one guy really got tickled by that because I haven't heard that word in years, you know? And I so I thought, ilk in the Elks, you know? So, no, I'm good. I'm good. How about you? I'm good. Do you know what A&W stands for? No, I'm going to say right now I don't. I used to. I think Allen and Wright. Okay, you're right. I think Allen and Wright. That's uh, very good. That's very good. I'm doing uh, very good today. Gus and I had a great day. We talked on the phone this morning, and I related to you all the trials and tribulations of fatherhood, and how sometimes the days are just not that great. <clears throat> so Tuesday, we record this on a Wednesday, was not fantastic he woke up in a very bad mood uh was kind of letting his mother and myself have it with both barrels throughout the entire day and i decided you know a little bit of psychic judo is necessary when days go the way days occasionally go it's important to know when that energy is too much because the ocean is very big and our boat is very small yeah so i uh I basically just yesterday I, I shut everything down. I said, we're going to get down. We're going to go back to basics. Uh, we're not going to try any fun experiments today. And we just survived. We just got through it. But today was cool. We went outside. Uh, we looked at bees. He was fascinated by the bees. The bees were landing on him and he thought that was hilarious. Uh, I cut the grass with my push reel mower with him in one arm and the mower in the other. Uh, didn't do a bad job either. Um, I got that push reel because I just didn't want to fool with gas. And also, it's just, it's kind of cool. It turns it into an exercise. It's tough to really push thing. a push reel mower. They're yeah. beautiful sculptural things. As it, When I was a, one of my earliest associations, which must have been, you know, like, like really, really early, like not far from Gus's stage, uh, I connected in my mind the old, I haven't heard that expression, push reel mowers, but that and an egg beater, mm. you know, the hand egg beater. What do you call those lawn mowers? Um, I think we just call them push mowers. Push, you know? oh, okay. Good. Yeah. Well, you know, in those days, like, you know, there really weren't, you know, the, the next step up for residential people, there, there wasn't really an alternative, you know? 
-hmm. and uh, all this new stuff, particularly these ridiculous, uh, you know, robot ones, you know, mm. I saw $7,000 for it's a Roomba, but it's a lawnmower. If that's not going to end up in some child getting, <laughs> getting yeah. chopped up in those fucking blades. I mean, I saw that when I was at Home Depot getting my mower, I, I this big box with this very sinister looking creature on the box. And I said, what on earth is this? So I was reading the box and yeah, you said it. And you just watch it go. What's the point? Mowing your lawn is fun, dude. I I enjoy it. Yeah, look, I think <laughs> you're going to have a real lawn. Lawns are sort of going out of fashion where I live because of the water shortage, you know. And mm-hmm. AstroTurf, which is now looking better and better, is coming in. Uh, the the bighorn sheep aren't really pleased about this because uh, they like to eat the real grass and they're not real keen on eating AstroTurf. They couldn't fool them for long about that. Mm-hmm. But I, yeah, I think there's something beautiful about um, the old lawn mowing days. And it's certainly, I, I'm kind of pleased to, because that was like a real sort of dad homemaking sort of ritual of the past. <laughs> and I think yeah. it's you're experiencing the fullness of that. Yeah. You put on a pair of jean shorts and a, and take your shirt off and, you know, just push your mower. You wave at your neighbors. It's a it's a good time. And uh, I live in a relatively friendly neighborhood too. There's a old man who lives just over the other side of the chain link fence from me, and he just got this mutt. I have no idea what kind of mix this thing is, but he was sitting out there on his lawn at you know 2 p.m. just drinking a beer with his puppy. He waved. I waved back. It was nice. And that's all you need. That's all you need. I'd like to talk to him eventually, but the whole afternoon felt really good. It just felt nice. So I hope that I hope that you've been feeling good too. I have been. It's been very different here. Extremely dramatic weather with uh, some amazing sky effects, which over the mountains of Lake Mead can make it look like, a, you know, a easily another planet or you know something out of tolkien uh but last night i saw something really cool immediately so i the the back in my from the back porch i look just totally due south so it's the house is oriented as due north and south as possible and airplanes do wink over red mountain and then head up to the north and then bank back west to land they're usually landing not taking off and so it's not unusual and of course i'm a ufo believer so i but they mm-hmm. usually come down from the north so there's a lot of weird stuff in the air and, and it looks really beautiful on them. but i noticed this like red orange light on top of uh i'm not sure what mountain it's called now uh, I should check on that. I think it's got a, some sort of gun in the name. Uh, but it's kind of lower and it's nothing as spectacular as Red Mount, which is actually pretty intense, but it's still beautiful in silhouette. And there's a love, it's right next to one that really does get my attention because it's like a perfect breast with a perfect <laughs> nipple. You know, if you're into mm-hmm. nipples, like this is not like too extreme, you know, uh, mm-hmm. like. It's it's not like the uh, like a Thai dancer nipple. It's more like a relaxed, uh, old school Florida 
stripper nipple, you know? Mm-hmm. And but the other man was where I saw this orange light. And I thought, what the hell, man? It's not Mars. It's not. It, I said, this looks does look UFO-ish. So I did, I went out and got my binoculars and I thought, I wonder. And sure enough, it was a bonfire on top of mm. and it was powerful. My my instantaneous reaction was very good. I felt like a kind of a drum beat, sort of like I could almost hear that. But I thought, you know, if you look the other way, all the way across the valley, that lo- that light could have been seen dimly from there. You know, it would have been a proper signal fire. And there was just something really beautiful about it. You know, it just made me feel good. So awesome. all good here. Very cool. Very cool. Well, do you have uh, a band and an aphorism for us today? I I do. I'll just share. uh, I was going to put this this up, but they're actually a real band that I'm doing a cover design for. They're a mariachi band uh, or neo-mariachi band, uh, kind of mariachi hip hop based in Mazatlan. I met them uh, a couple years back and saw them again uh, not too long ago. Um, they're called the Wrong Cactus, which I really <laughs> love, and um, I'm doing a, a a a cover design for them. They're they're beautiful, you know. Mariachi has this sort of you know joy to it, but also a kind of a sadness. And they've got a real um, their album is called No Miniana, and uh, they have a song mm-hmm. which. I contributed one lyric to called angels hanging from a bridge, which is about cartel violence. And Mm. it's really quite beautiful of how they're intermingling very contemporary as in recent news concerns into, you know, traditional uh, classic Mexican mariachi with it, with a new edge. But my, my fun silly band name is the glands because we're all about the glands today and hormones because we're just a hormone away from changing form that's true that's true i'm 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 three hormones away and their album is called and this is a real thing by the way phobophobia and the first single is several secretions from now uh, i like it i like it i like it. it's very goopy it's yes very... it's very goopy and there's a lot of really goopy analog and super overdub sound and it's like a bunch of uh very raw enthusiastic teenagers who suddenly got access to an old you know time old school recording studio you know like they got a free two hours and then they just went ape shit and got really high and wouldn't leave and locked themselves in and just started gooping up everything and you can imagine like if it was in really old school days of of, of cutting tape you know editing mm-hmm. with, a, with scissors or a razor it would have just been tape hanging everywhere and mm-hmm. sludge sounds secreted everywhere. Like uh, kind of like that, that great era of, of um, Texas garage punk bands, 
Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. that Rhino Records released some great stuff that just who knows what happened to those people? Probably some sort of mental institution, but it mm-hmm. was great energy at the time. So the glands, the glands, and several secretions from now. Wait, what is what is bobophobia? It's a fear of of fear. Oh, bobophobia. Oh, okay, okay, okay. I was it's like missing. theory, theory. You know, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. A fear of fear. Yeah, man, everybody has phobophobia right now. Wow, it's just all we're doing is manufacturing more strangeness. It's just. Uh, did I, did I heard I, what you said as I heard what you said as bobo, like b o b. Oh no, no, sorry, phobophobia. Yeah, p h o. Phobia. Phobophobia. P h o b o. Okay, okay, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Okay. And check out the, look, this is one of 17. I got the, did I show you? I got the total life science library. Oh, cool. First edition. So the mind and, I mean, I've got some of these right, but I mean, you know, matter, you know, and uh, that's cool. I've been plowing through the mind. So that's where I found phobophobia. But some of this shit is just so crazy. It's absolutely great stuff. I mean, and this was, you know, this is kind of like all about the optimism of the the push reel, mowing the lawn, raising the kids, knowledge possibility, world book encyclopedia, child craft, pre-internet, all the stuff that was available to very middle-class families that, you know, could really open up doors. And it was such a a great idea until television blew the whole thing out. But I'm, I just love the smell of these books. You know, they've been in somebody's garage or something for, they could have been in, it could have been in a yard sale, but uh, I found them at a secondhand store, but they're just the body, the scientist, the cell, weather, and then ships, you know, they're odd categories, but that and I'm 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 aiming to get the entire Golden Guide collection. Those are very expensive, though. But I felt good about getting seventeen of these really cool volumes for thirty bucks. That reminds me, I want to put a pitch out to our listeners. If you are the owner of either the physical or PDF copies. Although I don't think PDF copies are in existence of the basic principles of design by Manfred Meyer. Oh yes. I will be forever indebted to you because the cheapest I can find it is for $230 on eBay. Yeah. But I, and that's for the, the four volume set. It's, it's great. They're printed in a, you know, spiral bound form. Like I don't think they ever got, you know, one of those paperback. Uh, style with the spine um but that's what i'm really looking for because i think that like it looks beautiful and it is a really famous it's a magical book i haven't i can't believe it hasn't been reprinted um it's really surprising to me because it's supposed to be sort of but that's the way books are really supposed to be and this is what fascinates me particularly about this book Because you'll notice I said I couldn't find a PDF of it everywhere. It's one of these bits of, of occult knowledge that has completely 
circumvented the internet in a way. Like it's not floating around out there. I have to find it. And it's yeah. exciting. It's exciting. If I had an expendable $230, I would have purchased it. And I, and, dude, imagine that coming in the mail and you know that this is some hard to find shit. Yeah, exactly. And it's going to give you some, it's going to give you some esoteric knowledge about design. It's from 1964. You, I mean, you know that, I mean, look at graphic design today. Everything looks like crap. So if you want to get the real stuff, you got to go back to the 60s at least. And oh, I just, I look at this on eBay every day and I'm like, if anybody has that, uh, this is a Hail Mary shot in the dark. If anybody has that and is willing to part with it for significantly less than $230, (laughs) I'm willing to make a deal. I'll throw a hundred bucks at it. But uh, anyway not trying to derail our conversation, but I had to use our platform to, to try. Yeah, to... <laughs> no, well, you know, it, it raises an interesting question because there are these magic books and they have a significance because they are truly rare. And let's face mm-hmm. it, there is an antiquarian rare books, you know, world out there that is really, uh, quite wonderful and also very expensive but it's not quite magical in the same way that you and i mean it Uh, it would be cool in a sense to because a lot of the all these books are in the public domain now probably uh to to re-release them you know Mm -hmm. and to have a publishing company doing that and then i instantly thought to myself no what you just said is is so important is that they're 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 fine art creations they're magical occult creations in the sense that there aren't multiple copies you know they really are that precious you know they're what they're like the way some some records used to you know and you'd meet somebody who would really have something special and you'd think oh my god you know, and the very co- the cool thing was that not everybody knew about, you know, it's just like because mm-hmm. the moment the Internet would sort of get it, it just might, you know. Yeah, that's why most of my books, when that tornado hit my, uh, you know, most of the stuff that I lost in there, uh, it's important to me from a memory perspective. And, you know, I do I do treat objects with a certain amount of respect. But it's it's toys and games from when I was a kid. So if they're gone, they're gone. But and most of my books are that way too. And how messed up is that? That if I lost my books tomorrow in a fire, <laughs> there would there would be a handful that I would be upset. I'd be upset that I would lose Reverend America, right? Uh, a few other ones that are you know out of print that I really cherish and that I've worn out that are you know all read through and the spines broken and all that kind of stuff but rare book collecting might become a serious hobby of mine actually because i just i've never been so obsessed with getting what was probably printed in 1960 what was probably printed for about 30 cents i'm i'm considering spending 230 dollars to acquire it (laughs) yeah well, yeah. you know, like just like collecting uh, visual art, it, it, it's a way to make money. It's a, it's a very reasonable investment, 
you know, mm-hmm. like a, mm-hmm. a first edition of On the Road. I mean, that's 50 grand, you know, it might be more now even, uh, which is interesting. So, and, and that whole world is a reminder of the importance of record keeping and that cherishing of, of artifact that is really a, a crucial part of culture. You know, yeah. and we may be yeah. on the edge of losing that instinct completely. I think so, but I, I believe that people are, I do want to get to your aphorism, but I, I do believe that people are coming around on that because everybody stopped buying CDs and DVDs when streaming came along. Uh, but in the case of DVDs and streaming in particular, about 10 years on from that, we're beginning to learn the error of our ways because I wanted to watch some uh, some of John Woo's earlier films like Hard Boiled and The Killer and uh, A Better Tomorrow. And I have all of them on DVD, maybe, if my stuff survived the tornado. They're being very cagey about it. It's been almost a month and they haven't, they won't let anybody in. They won't tell us what happened. They're not sending any emails, so I don't know if my stuff survived. But I wanted to watch those movies because uh, I wanted to show them to Rios. And I was able to find Hard Boiled on YouTube because it has no distributor in the U.S. right now. But finding The Killer and Better Tomorrow movies, is I have to, I have to go to pirate sites to go find them. So I think that... This is something that people didn't really think about, you know, because if I owned uh, A Better Tomorrow, have you seen these films, by the way, these John Woo films? Uh, I've seen the, uh, the Killer. The Killer. So if I had The Killer on Blu-ray, I could have just popped it in and we could have watched it. But because we've become these creatures of streaming, uh, all of a sudden it's like, well, it's not on any website, so... Yeah. What do we do now? Yeah. So there's there's a there's a flaw in the whole thing, right? Which is that these things are not permanent. The space that these movies take up uh, has to be constantly replaced. And feel like I wanted to watch the John Wick films uh, because I love those movies. I think they're great. <laughs> with Ke- with Keanu Reeves, have you seen these movies? I, I I of course haven't seen the latest one yet, but now I have seen them. I did get sucked into it. Yeah, yeah I, I've seen I've seen all the first three. I've seen them several times and I, yeah. I wanted to rewatch them because uh, Rios and I are going to go watch part four this weekend. But uh, we have HBO, but they're not on HBO anymore. Now they're on Peacock. So I had to go freaking download Peacock. And <laughs> and it's it's so stupid. It's But if I just owned the Blu-rays of them. Just pop them in and watch them. And it's that simple. Well, there's nothing simple about all this because I think what we really are talking about is is where culture lives. And it's the Mm. embodied, disembodied uh, aspect of of life today. And it it gets to some really deep confusions that affect everybody all the time. You know, people talk about the cloud, you know, and and there are people I know who really think the cloud is like... uh, the newosphere, you know, that it's actually mm-hmm. somehow atmospheric and not connected to any. And I said, no, 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 no. It's servers. It's it's very material physics based. Believe me, 
It's just mm-hmm. off-site mm-hmm. from the people using it. But it's a very odd idea, and it ties in a lot with, with work I'm, I'm doing on the Memory and Consciousness book about storage, you know, trying to break free of that fundamental uh, Lakoffian metaphor of store memory as storage and mm-hmm. some sort of retrieval mm-hmm. process and mm-hmm. why that is such an unfortunate uh, metaphor or paradigm to apply, but very difficult to shake. Uh, and that's one of the the arguments that I'm taking on, trying to marshal some reasonable, uh, reasonably uh, quickly, uh, quickly grasped reasons why that framework mm-hmm. is so debilitating, uh, yeah. even though it may have some utility in some way. Obviously, yeah. it would exist because we, because we know that we don't store memories. Our memories are not stored somewhere on our mind, like on a computer, and we know that's, that only that's one- true. Yeah, well, that's the Rupert Sheldrake. You know, it's it's offsite. It's like the television, yeah. the analogy of the television set that the, yeah. the little people aren't in the box. But mm-hmm. I think it's it's much deeper than than where the memories are because also we don't have any clear uh, categorical unity in what we define as memory. You know, mm-hmm. it's completely mm-hmm. jumbled. You know. Yeah, I think it's I think it's varying degrees of non-local connections to moments in the past. That's what I think it is. I don't think it's a, a just like a, a movie that's stored in there that we press play on and then we I think it's more along the lines of uh genuinely inhabiting the past for a moment based on environmental or psychological triggers. That's what I think, anyhow. But oh, and I think great early if not first reader of the book when i get it (laughs) yeah cool and i I think that i think that the things about plant memory prove this because plants have memory but plants don't have brains so where are those memories stored where where are they where do they store them i think you're really good because you're going to enjoy this whenever it finally gets done. And I'm not making any promises because it keeps blowing up. And it's so fun mm-hmm. just to uh, to worry over and and joyfully pick apart and get eaten alive by. But uh, I think I can say that, that part of the uh, forming thesis is that memory has nothing to do with the past. And I... I'm- love that i oh man i just got chills i got that's the coolest thing i've ever heard you say memory has nothing to do with the past boom bro that is blowing my mind man yeah thank you i'm glad (laughs) it is it 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 gets really so wild and so (laughs) it really does oh that's the coolest thing i've heard all right, we've we've digressed. What is your aphorism for today? Okay, well, this shows that that you and I are in sync without even because you'd mentioned nothing about uh, the lawnmower and all that that is an emblem of. But this is a beautiful sort of resonance to it. I aspire to the gracious optimism of a front door with an oval window on Wyoming Street where there are porch swings and rocking chairs. Mm-hmm. 
I like that mention of the oval window because we we talked about the strip windows last week, you yeah. know, and yeah, yeah, yeah. That's and, beautiful. And in the front door today, yeah. when you know, some people have like 4 million locks and, you know, this property protected by ADT and all this security <laughs> stuff. This is you now those beautiful deco, you know, over windows mm-hmm. that are welcoming and but taste really tasteful. I think they have a feminine quality to them, but not frilly. I just think they say stability and security in a deep sense. Everything that you were talking about, the neighborhood and the vibe that you had today, that sense of really profound, certainly, I mean, let's just say this is that there's an American frame to this. Uh, from a style and design point of view, but there is an American sense of optimism, structure, and harmonic order that is, uh, it's just, I don't know, it, it just gives me a very good vibe. I think it's terrific for kids and dogs, and that's a, a diagnostic of what may be good for uh, for everyone. So, yeah, the oval window in a front door. Awesome. I love that. What is my imaginative challenge for the day? Okay, well, we're double clutching on this for a pretty intense gear shift, but it's in in exact register with what we've just been talking about. Uh, I want you to, it's a science fiction uh, scenario, Um, sardonic cynical, hard-edged, but socially based. Um, told in the first person, which will be used, the narrator, you're you're a terrorist because you're right. raising a heterosexual-based family in a very traditional sense that, you know, could have been, you know, your family, and it could have been described 150, 200 years ago, on and on and on. But in this brave, weird new world, uh, every baby is potentially reassigned in terms of any gender, but maybe oftentimes uh, degendered entirely, as in physically neutered and assigned to the state in very much a Huxleyan sort of way. Heterosexuality has been outlawed. Reproduction and education or indoctrination is handled by the corporate government state, which has become known as the brand. And all leadership is AI driven with the personification of completely non-binary people of unknown race. Disguised, camouflaged faces. So it's it's a grim scenario, but in the midst of that is a lawn mowing dad breaking all the rules, going against the grain, uh, having to to dodge uh, ridicule, incarceration, and possible extermination. Um, but trying to do that with a joyful heart, perhaps, too. I don't know. But I thought, you know, we need to talk about these things. And I think that's one of the purposes of speculative fiction, science fiction. I know you agree with that. Um, 
And yet we seem to be unable to, to talk about things. And I have to say this, I, this was prompted by a rejection notice that one of my better writing students received uh, from a New York uh, agent saying that the book couldn't be taken on despite being well-written because it put forward a um, near future scenario of China as in the Chinese government taking over global control and certainly America and what the fallout position of that might be. And I just can't believe it, but that was deemed to be uh, racially inappropriate. And I don't really, I think that's a very mistaken use of the concept of race. I don't, I don't think nevertheless. it's, I don't think it's mistaken at all. I think that, I think that's it. I think that's exactly what these uh, neoliberal uh, anti-racist mind games uh, are for. I don't think there's ever been a more, uh, that I've heard more clear encapsulation of what they're trying to do with this kind of thing by calling it reminds me of calling anti-zionism anti-semitic yes right? it's exactly in the same register of mistake absolutely yeah yeah so you see where i'm going with all this. oh yeah I mean, no i, I, mean, I mean, all, all the anti-racism stuff is a smokescreen so that they so that the nefarious things that are going on that will happen to us in the near future uh, can be dismissed out of hand as being racist. I mean, what's wrong with positing China as a global superpower? It's entirely, I mean, come on, man. It's it's the case now. They are one of the three global mm -hmm. super, and I would suggest that they're uh, the preeminent one. I, I really, I can't imagine what the problem with that is. And the fact that, that that nation state reflects so many different races, cultures, language groups, really. Uh, it's just bewildering what this, and you're right, it's 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 a it's a neoliberal uh willful mushing in most cases. I think some right. people are generally uh, genuinely ignorant. So there mm -hmm. are some, but sometimes it's just rhetorical. But we're gonna take that to task and have some fun with it because. Speculative ideas in fiction and storytelling are, are, you know, they're cathartic and they're challenges for the imagination and they're they're fun. And they may say something important about, uh, you know, what's not allowed, you know. Mm -hmm. I've got two sentences to start. OK, I've written those down. I don't think you'll get into any more trouble than I did with a, with what I thought was a humble little, if you, anyone can Google on it right, you know, now and see what the current gender unicorn looks like. And I have nothing against the gender unicorn, cute little drawing, cute little cartoon. I made a mention of, I thought that the gender unicorn was a bit tubby. And I thought tubby is kind of a fun word, you know, an innocent word. I didn't say fat, you know, or like anything. Grimace, like the McDonald's character. Yeah. Well, no, look, you better. No, no, that was not greeted well at all. So we have an enormous, you know, number <laughs> of 
people who are so sensitive, it's just, you know, you wonder how do they actually function? How do they get well, I'm 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 not particularly worried about uh, getting in trouble with this because I'm very interested in in telling truth. There and, you go. Good idea. Uh, I don't think I'm, I've just I've moved so because I've been in trouble so many times over the past ten years or so for telling the truth. Uh, I no longer really, really care. That's been, in a sense, psychologically beaten out of me. I just, it doesn't, not, none of it scares me. Like, what, what are you going to do? Are you going to come to my house? I don't think you will. Uh, and I'm sorry if you do. But uh, yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not particularly worried about that. But I've got some good ideas. I've got a title. Oh God, you're on fire! And I've got a and I've got a concept here, um, <clears throat> but uh, to start off the show, normally uh, our listeners will know that I start the show by asking Chris what he wants to talk about today. But I thought I would take a different tack here, and Chris often sends me text messages before we start the show about you know his various sundry ideas, and. I, th- I thought I would read that for the audience because I think this works as a beautiful prose poem. Um, and if there's something that we don't get to, and there's so much in here that I am a hundred percent sure that we won't get to all of it. I wanted to put it out there specifically so that our listeners, if there's something that I say uh, in my uh, uh, performance of Chris's text message that you want to hear that you let us know so that we can return to it because I don't want this to be lost. Here is the text that Chris sent to me on Monday at 6 15 PM. This is a bit to deal with, but it's about architecture, the social architecture of renting slash owning and mental health. And it's based on Seoul data. That's Seoul Korea. I'm thinking the general theme for next time is architecture time, art as ordered imagination, mental illness as disordered imagination, the occult mathematics in the walls, which I fucking, I love. I want that to be the title of a book, the occult occult mathematics in the walls, parentheses, which are walls, ellipses, and windows maybe, the intense eroticism of motels, Hong Kong cage homes, plus an agitator tie-in to dystopian Japan, Great Zimbabwe, Virginia City, Dead City of the Caves, France, a nod back to Heiser, prefab 3D printed ruins, mid-century modern joy versus Phoenix today, some great new synchronicities. And then uh, for the main segment, I think this sets the stage for, for a following episode on theme parks, where this is Disney Vegas, uh, TN Tennessee TN yeah. what is it? like Gatlin Tennessee, Tennessee yeah. oh, okay Tennessee in particular slash uh, state and national parks game reserves slash more about the Oklahoma City Zoo that's just great I love getting those texts so Chris of that of that what, yeah. what do you want to talk about today okay 
Wow, there really, yeah, there was a, a lot. There. Well, I think that what we, architecture we've said is such a, a rich idea. And it it's one of those ideas that unfolds and unfolds to the point where it makes possible other ideas. So it might be very near the heart of the whole strange fissure that broke open with language. But we, we've talked about in terms of, of space, and that's probably what it's most thought of, the organization of space and the relationship of human physicality and psychology to space, and then all the social ramifications. Uh, and I think those are really worth talking about in terms of renting and owning. Uh, and the Hong Kong references is... KHMs are just their very, very small little apartments. The idea of them being homes is ridiculous. But the, the, the cultural issue there is sharing a space with a complete stranger on a 12-hour on, 12-hour off basis. So you have this weird doppelganger relationship where you never yeah. are supposed to meet this person, and yet their smells and stuff are in the air. But... So there's lots of, of social implications about architecture and space and the physical management of space and the commercial implications of space. But I thought it was interesting to really think about architecture and time and how time is, is really given the shape that it is through architecture. I mean, how else do we really know what's going on in many ways? We, we're in certain rooms at certain times. We're out of the house. All of the prepositional spatial frames that come into play have totally, are totally connected with time. And we know from physics that space and time are united. But we often don't really think of that minute to minute, day to day. And that got me thinking about the the bedroom and i was thinking of the first house that i ever bought which was in uh the rural australian town of castleman right beneath the old jail where people men were hanged up until you know the 1930s but an old gold rush imposing jail and my house had been the cheapest house on this Street of Elm Trees, no Dutch Elm disease there, and the railroad tracks. And it took me three months of butt-sweating work to re, you know, really restore it because it had been inhabited by junkies and left derelict for about a year. So it was a real mess. And there were only two bedrooms, and it was absolutely unexceptional in terms of design. There were many, many houses like that all over the place. As you know, there are houses the same as yours in your neighborhood. And yet, like many, many of the houses, there were six or seven kids in the family. Now, I got to thinking about that every time uh, when I got married, you know, and every time my wife and I went to bed and we could just, you know, go at it without worrying about it, I thought, you know, wait a minute. How did how did 
people deal with that lack of privacy. And we're starting to see the issue of, of privacy and time again is more, you know, millennials are not leaving home. Gen Z may never leave home. And then I started thinking about, uh, I, I was, I went into the, the pharmacy and I just, I walked down the aisles sometimes taking photographs just to remind myself what, what the medical needs of, of our society are. And there's always so much to do with sleep problems. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about, you know, and here in Vegas, maybe, I don't know if it's the same in, in Oklahoma City, but it must be. On every corner, there's a mattress store. So yes. it's, there's yeah. mattress shit everywhere. There's all these sleep aids there's the fact that that there actually is privacy to to for couples to have sex or into you know whatever and there's all of this stuff that we've got going for us today that people didn't have not that long ago i mean and think like 150 years like 100 years ago what people were sleeping on then and how hard some people were working that's maybe why they could sleep so well mm-hmm. there's something there so I thought about this notion of how architecture, what does architecture do in, let's say, a residential sense to facilitate the, the human needs, you know? And, and what it's done has really required more, more space than what your average working family can afford. And, and the houses all remain like, you know, 1,000 square feet to 2,000 at most. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But the whole idea of managing rhythms, and then I thought of the term circadian rhythm. And I realized, you know, a lot of people know what that means, but they don't know where circadian comes from. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I didn't either. And I looked it up and it's an, it, was, it came about in the 1950s when suddenly the time clock the commuting train thing, the whole rat race and the term rat race gets started. Circadian gets started then. It's bastardized Latin. Some journalist made it up and it Mm -hmm. caught on. Circa means about this day, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's a complete, you know, media word. And all of this is happening at the time the architecture begins to take this very strange shift that we were talking about. And I think what it's done is it's completely distorted our sense of time. And certainly in partnership with the internet, I don't think we have any idea when we are. I've often thought about that. I believe I've mentioned on this show that visiting a site like Twitter has a very strange time manipulation aspect to it. I remember in my youth growing up pre-internet that there would be vast stretches of time where my friends and I were profoundly bored to the point that we would do really stupid things to pass the time and to not be bored. And I've been bored the past two days and it's a completely alien feeling to me mm. to have a couple of hours each day 
uh, very specifically because I scheduled my editing clients to where I would have this, this three day period of not doing any work. Uh, it's, it's felt very strange to have this kind of time where I don't do anything, but I've been leaning into it. I haven't been looking at my phone. I haven't been reading a book or working on my drawing or anything like that. I've just been bored and appreciative of that boring time. But the idea of not knowing where we are, I think is mainly influenced by the internet. I think that's that's an internet phenomenon. Although I will say that architecture and the space that you're in has to do with the way that you perceive time. It has to, it has to, because how fast does a vacation go by? It goes by so quickly. And I think it's because the architecture is a bit, it's alien. It's a space that you're not familiar with. And somehow that seems to make you move through it a bit quicker than you normally would. What do you think about that in terms of the alienness of the architecture? Well, I think that's getting to the the, the kind of intuitive process that was going on that, that got me you know, on this role. I think that's exactly in the right direction. It, it struck me when you were speaking that, and, and you didn't say this, but I think this is what, what came to mind, is that I know people who would say that the, the dwelling, building, whatever they're living in is, is not architecture. In other words, their idea of architecture would be a known, named architect, like you know Frank Lloyd Wright or something, that would be specially designed. And right. the actual truth that their their structure has been designed, it's just maybe that you know it's just cookie cutter or something like that. That that eliminates architecture from it, and I think that's one of the problems when we talk about architecture. Um, is that people often think that it's not something, uh, well, that it's completely bespoke, uh, fine art kind of uh, a product or endeavor mm -hmm. rather than the real truth, you know? Yeah, that, yeah, the word architecture does bring to mind these kind of, I, I wonder if it's the objectivity of a building that makes it architecture rather than the subjectivity. I wonder if the subjectivity of the home doesn't separate it in some way. What do you mean in this case by the subjectivity and objectivity? That sounds really interesting. I mean, the fact that a home is imbued with memories and uh, human associations, uh, it's very much of the subject, right? So your home matters to you insofar as uh, you live in it and your memories are created there, you decorate it. And the architecture is objective. It's an object, right? It's the Parthenon. It's Notre Dame. It's something that exists, out, exists outside of your personal sphere of subjectivity. Okay. Okay. Well, that's, that is what I thought you meant. Um, well, it, I think insofar as 
that one's own residence is isn't subjective and maybe entirely so maybe you, you, we never get a look at that um and i think isn't it the case that when we do get an objective look at it to some extent it's annoying <laughs> you know, yeah. it usually means oh dear there's something wrong here or what's that mm -hmm. smell or you know yeah. I've, got to, oh, I've got to get up on the ladder again no yeah. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah every time i look at my house objectively i'm like it's a little ugly I love yeah, my house, but because I I love my house because subjectively I live in it. <laughs> but I mean, think about the subjectivity and objectivity of a Notre Dame, right? Of being the hunchback versus being the tourist. Like, yeah. what does the hunchback think about Notre Dame versus me? Uh, well, I wouldn't be visiting it now because I, I think it's still closed. But uh, if I were to be visiting it, what would I think of it? If I'm a, a stranger in a strange land, <clears throat> if I'm visiting Seoul or Paris or Montpellier or London, and I'm seeing all of this as uh, uh, you're, you're sort of seeing these structures um, in a very strange way where it's simultaneously uh, deeply embedded with the memories and lives that have that have lived in these places for hundreds and hundreds, thousands of years in some cases. And the 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 kind of objectivity, that my personal subjectivity puts onto it by virtue of me not being of that place. Uh, it's interesting, right? Like it's it, the, the, the difference in these kind of buildings, like my uh, objectively uh, mediocre 1800 square foot house in Oklahoma city is, you know, subjectively more important and interesting and full of personality to me than uh something that is objectively beautiful like you know take your pick of of cool architectural structures look i get you completely and uh i i'm having this weird uh experience because there's been just a really interesting synchronicity because I have not thought of the hunchback of Notre Dame in a very long time as a, particularly as a book, the original book. And I happened to, uh, this was just two days ago and, um, it's a very, very strange river of events and decisions and, uh, apparently chance events that brought me around to uh, reading the one really, really core passage when uh, Ugo, Ugo um, really lets us in on what the, uh, what the cathedral means uh, to our hunchback friend. And it is a beautiful, it's about a paragraph long litany of all the things that it means. I mean, from womb to, you know, you think of any metaphor of great support, reassurance, nurture, center of origin, you know, on and on and on. I mean, it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful litany of profound archetypal meaning that the cathedral delivers to the hunchback. Now, I have not thought of that in a very, very long time. And through just strange chance, I came across that one key section, not 48 hours ago. And then you've just come up with 
Isn't that weird? That's weird because I haven't thought about Notre Dame before this conversation, but it's just hand in mind. Well, yeah, I mean, and you could have plugged in many, many other possibilities there. That's Mm -hmm. an emblem of architectural grace and gorgeousness and, and grand achievement, sure, but there are others that could be there. So that that's just that that freaked me out. Uh that really did. It's uh oh okay. Um one of the interesting uh things that was in that uh prose poem list of rough ideas that I that does really keep grabbing me is the like pre-ruined buildings or 3D printed ruins or the the business of creating anachronisms and uh dereliction and you know imagine like creating a, a great derelict amusement park you know maybe like you know one in florida you know co- just covered in vegetation and strangeness and you know alligators and uh pythons would be haunted. it would be really cool i think to to design something like that and I think that's the 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 problem with with architecture in that objective sense when it loses its beauty is that it loses all that imagination and it becomes purely the cheapest product that you can crank out the most of. But if we go back to our subjective states, supposing you could architecturally modify where you're living right now what would you do differently i would add a porch i'm glad you asked because i have some ideas i had a porch and i'd add a deck uh i would include a in the southwest corner of my yard i'd put a sauna in uh and i i would really love to you know if we're talking about just like no no budget whatsoever like no budget i love this i pushed the right button you put you push the right button i would love to have my living room be i would love a sunken living room i would love that so much just a few oh. steps down a few steps down and a few steps up to the bedroom i think would be really cool oh i'm I gonna would, get my lava lamp out oh yeah, yeah bro yeah yeah add a basement <clears throat> i would love to add a basement where i could put my washer and dryer so that they're not i have a a dedicated room to the washer and dryer, which is fine, but you know, it's the interim room between the garage and my, and my uh, dining room, living room space. So it's kind of, it's not, I wouldn't say intrusive, but I would like to have it downstairs. And I would also like to have a basement space for, you know, tornadoes, things of that nature, a place that we could go, you know, whenever the weather's bad, it's no big deal because we just go to the basement and, we'll be fine. Right. I'm totally shocked that of all the homes I've lived in, in Oklahoma for my entire lives, for my entire life, um, none of them have basements, which I think is part of the storm shelter industrial complex to get you to pay $3,000 to get a storm shelter installed instead of just having a freaking basement. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I could go on, but that's for starters. Wow, that was I love the uh the storm shelter industrial complex because I think I you know it 
partially because of the Wizard of Oz, but uh, Kansas and Oklahoma would be the two states that I think of, you know, first with, with tornadoes or, uh, and yeah, getting into a, a, and of course people around here still have bomb shelters. Uh-huh. And, and I, I love the, I, I've always loved that, you know, the trope of people uh, either neighbors fighting to get into the bomb shelter or the family goes into the bomb shelter and it was really a false alarm or, you know, all of those. Actually, the bomb shelter is a very interesting bit of architecture. Very interesting. Let's just, okay, this is good word substitution. We've got bomb shelter and storm shelter just came up in conversation. Let's look at, you know, Bachelard's idea of, of the house is its first function is to protect the daydream. So is it a dream shelter? Mm. We can't say world. That's too general. The outside world. No, that, that just that's what because we want to be as specific as storm and bomb. What is the house the shelter for? Is it the dream shelter, the Bachelardian dream shelter? Is that what we're doing? That seems like what's being protected. The other phrases are in terms of what's being protected against mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. the, the invading force. Right, because, yeah, the, the dreams are being generated. So there's a fundamental difference Uh the What's storm shelter down on us. The sto- you know? yeah, the, the storm shelter still works. The house has storm shelter. I mean, uh, I would like to think of a better word for it. But the the way I'll tell you the way that my thoughts are going, it's uh the house is uh it's a shelter from noise. Ah they're people. Um <clears throat> If you turn off the internet and TV, it's a shelter from outside ideologies. Um, that's that's always what's come to mind when I've thought of the word hut. Hut feels like a insulated, sheltered place. I like hut. I like hut. I look. I think you you just touched on a very very. Simple word, but one of just immense significance to the point where this is one of those key things that people today really struggle to perceive even, and they can't get their heads around how different the situation is today than only a very short while ago. And it's noise. Noise, yeah. Noise. You know, I mean, noise as a a word, as opposed to sound and obviously as opposed to music, but noise has a connotation that, I mean, compare it to light. I mean, light could be uh, annoying. It could be bad. You know, it could keep your keep you awake. There's all sorts of ways that other people's lights or light in the environment could be annoying. But it's almost there, there's also a very good part of light in terms of safety, security, 
symbolically. Noise has nothing good going for it. Noise is, is really uh, connotatively uh, contraindicated, you know? You don't, mm -hmm. no one really likes noise. And I think that is such a difference in our lives, and that has everything to do with architecture. Um, yeah, people will say population density. Yeah, but you can live in an area with the, you know the same percentage of people, number of people uh, spread out over the same space, but the nature of the architecture will change the nature of the people and nature of the noise. You know, I want to put a pin in that for a second because I want to ask you about the most compelling bit of that text you sent, which is the occult mathematics in the walls. Okay, yeah, I want to know about the occult mathematics in the walls. Okay, well, so I'm reading this fabulous just reminder book about the brain. And I think this book actually inspired a lot of my, uh, my interest in science actually, or this, this series. It certainly, I remembered that it had um, in the mental illness part, it has um, pictures, uh, examples from uh, Hieronymus Bosch and things. So it, I got a lot from this, but there's a, a lot, in the last section about computing and all these amazing wires and stuff that say were just in the original Univac computer. And so the whole nervous system and is, is a network of wiring. And I've been thinking about that and thinking about electricity always because, well, David Lynch and also mm -hmm. because I live near the Hoover Dam and that has been a mo I, I love the relief model. I've got a video that I've made of that, of how that works and how the electric energy moves from the Colorado River to my house, for instance, and, and that process. So all of those things are in my mind. And I think all of those are entry points to the idea of really deep infrastructure infrastructure that we take for granted and that we may not really understand. And when you take, just say the, the real network of electricity from the Hoover Dam turbines to here, it's hard for even one knowledgeable person to explain every single stage in that process. And all of them depend on not just engineering, but deep levels of mathematics. And when people say that, you know, math is, you know, too Eurocentric, which is ridiculous, or that it's culturally, it, it's beyond that. I mean, I think Lynch is right. It's, it's got an almost supernatural quality. And the management of it is dependent on a very occult framework of mathematics. You know, I think some mathematicians and certainly some physicists would not like the term occult, occult you know, applied to that. But nonetheless, uh, their mathematical traditions began with occultists, really, you know, in in Renaissance days, going back to uh, the the Arab genius, you know, of, of the Middle Ages. So it, there's something fundamentally uh 
fault in the mathematics that drives the physics that is making that energy move around. And it's just simply, I, it's first of all astonishing. And astonishing doesn't mean it can't be understood. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would argue that, and I think you'd agree, that a cult doesn't mean something can't be understood or even mysterious. It's just... No, it, it, just, it just has to be looked for. Exactly. And, and accepted kind of on its own terms. And, but I think that is another way of, of how, of a way of seeing of how architecture just ripples out as an idea where it seems to suggest very structured, you know, the, the whole basis of the idea of structure. It's actually very amorphous and protean moving out in all sorts of, of shapes because the infrastructure that makes things like electricity and water, all of that's part of the architecture, all of it, you know, it's all linked in, in complicated networks. So there really isn't any more an example of, well, that when there is, it's like what your mother said about Christmas lights in a house or what you said about her reaction, that houses shouldn't call attention to themselves out of certain holiday seasons. Mm-hmm. And um, there are a couple of uh, timber shingled uh, geodesic domes in Boulder. Boulder City is very eccentric. There's some, and there's some wonderful moments. You can see some like 60s hippies came out here and were doing visionary things in the desert. And now they look like these kind of really tragic spaceships that will never fly again, you know, it's mm-hmm. crazy. But uh, yeah, yeah, the I, uh, your mention of the geodesic dome, I just have to bring up that Oklahoma City has this fantastic place called the Gold Dome. It's actually a landmark for Route 66. It's downtown OKC. If I remember correctly, it's off twenty. It's off of Twenty Third Street. I want to say I used to drive past it all the time, but it used to be. Uh, I want to say it was a jewelry store at one point. I'm going to find a picture of it actually and send it to you because this it's currently unoccupied. It's being renovated to have some other use, but it's this completely bizarre uh, gold dome building. That's just in downtown OKC that I think you'll really appreciate. Let me just Google that on my phone. It just really reminds me, and this is a good example. This ties into the infrastructure idea because infrastructure becomes invisible because taken for granted. I often forget that you and I are connected in space in real architect civil engineering terms by the remnants of Route 66. Mm-hmm. You know, and that spirit way, that song line still hums and it's in how you knew what, you know, A&W stands for. It's, it's that mm-hmm. kind of knowledge. I love yeah. that. Just, just, just things, things to remember. I sent you that picture through. Let me know if you got it. I did. Oh, look, that's, I mean, Oh, well, I, I'm not, there was a, um, 
a theater like that in LA, but that is so Vegas, but that is so beautiful. And I love it's still there. It's and it's been closed. It was a citizen's bank, uh, a jewelry store. It's been through a lot of incarnations. I don't know what they're going to put in it now, but this is a historic shot because the cars are, are all this. Is, and that has a, it's yeah. a postcard, isn't it? Cause it has uh, that beautiful. I want to uh, say it was 58 when it was built. I think it, I think it came out in 58. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's right by Chinatown in downtown Oklahoma city, which we do have, we have a Chinatown, um, lots of great Thai restaurants, uh, Rios and I go there all the time. There's this really fancy place, uh, called Southwest Frida. Every time we walk out of that restaurant, we've spent like 150 bucks. So we only, we go there once a year, uh, <laughs> it's kind of like a super special date, uh, but it's like it's it's very near both uh, kind of black ghetto OKC, uh, homeless OKC, and very posh rich OKC. It's that 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 you know your pretty standard typical downtown tattoo shops and uh, you know uh, multi ethnic places to eat and fringe occult bookstores and people with their pants down screaming at the sun. Like that's, that's okay. That's right where it's at. Uh, but it's a, it's a, it's a really cool building that I love to pass by. It, it's, it's cool in every way. And I love the uh, sort of uh, 60s, 70s color saturation in it. It's got a classic postcard sort of look, the pic that you sent. It's a beautiful build. And it it obviously has uh I mean it's the modern Stone Age family sort of whimsy and optimism and space age uh jetsony uh nonsense joy to it that I can't imagine what that would look like today. I really, really can't. I, That's I can't. what we're missing. Yeah. You just hit it, man. That's what we're missing. We're missing that kind of space age optimism. Because every everything, every building feels like it's just settling. It feels like it's saying, well, this is the best we can do. And it felt like back then people were taking some risks you know how hard it in in 1960 or whenever that building was made to convince people like hey we're gonna make this bank look badass (laughs) right like what what happened to that nobody does that now if you're gonna open a mid first or a wells fargo or whatever you're gonna just it's gonna look like a Wells Fargo or a Midfirst or a Bank of America. It's not going to be special. It's cookie cutter. But what if? Yeah, yeah. And and what would it take to, to refire both? Well, the imagination, uh, mm-hmm. some degree of real uh, historical knowledge, I think some appreciation of of traditions and innovations of the past, but also the the open heartedness to do something mm-hmm. uh, courageous and and not just strange or um, kind of what you can get away with, 
you know, in an aggressive sort of weirdo sort of way. I, I can see that there are a lot, and I know there are a lot of ideas that may not come to fruition, but they are put forward that have that kind of oh, sort of pseudo edginess to it that, that really just looks like a kind of a nasty gimmick rather than a fun gimmick, you mm-hmm. know? Whereas mm-hmm. this building is is really what was it again? I mean, what was it was a citizens bank at first, and then it turned into a jewelry store. And currently, because I passed it not two weeks ago, that's just... uh, it's being renovated. But I like what you said about that optimism, and how there are two sides to the coin when it comes to modern buildings. There is the 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 trend chasing. And then there is the reaction to the trend chasing, the gaudy, audacious style building that is still necessarily in the dialectic, in the paradigm of the trend because of its reactionary nature versus a third thing, the third man in the woods, this gold dome that is outside of that dialectic, right? Uh, it's not. It's neither. It's not a. It's not a thesis in an antithesis or a synthesis. It's just let's do something different. Where well, is that? Well, you would think that that's exactly what would be going on, given you know people's desire to really break up you know traditional structures according to gender and and sexuality, mm. and that. Mm. That does, it doesn't seem reflected in any kind of architectural or fashion statements even of today. It seems to be going just totally, totally the other way. And I mean, I wonder, you know, is where does Las Vegas stand in because it's so filled with these statements, it almost kind of loses that power because it it's that becomes the expectation, some ersatz silliness, you know, um, that doesn't really have, there's no integrity. The only visual integrity that is offered is, is the actual mountains of the valley, you know, mm-hmm. that define the valley. That's really the only thing that gives it, that's not entirely true. I think probably actually, if you analyzed it purely in a shape's sense if you reduced it to that that you know very abstract level it probably does have more coherence than i'm i'm giving it uh but ersatz is a very important word it's yeah i I, that's the it's the it's the word that comes to my mind when i think of vegas you know Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, i think Mm -hmm. that that's really um and that the book that we've talked about leaving uh learning from las vegas uh, which was a really, really influential architectural text of the 60s. And uh, it's still, I, I still think it's its phenomenally interesting. It's mandatory or was mandatory reading for architects, obviously, but it's some of the best criticism and theory about contemporary architecture or relatively modern architecture. And it really did a lot to instill the idea of reading buildings as texts in a mm-hmm. very contemporary sense, which now I think if you apply that idea to, uh, there's almost nothing, you know, the reading is, it's not good reading. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, kind yeah. Of what we're saying is that it's. Um, all it, good, all good buildings have a feeling of heraldry about them, right? 
Oh, um, that's a nice. That's really nice. Mm-hmm. That's really nice. Do you think that that comes from? Okay, well, that has nothing to do uh, with real, just base level functionality. Mm-hmm. That that gets way past that, and that is on the level of managed subjectivity and nurtured subjectivity and i think that that is uh i just filled in my own blank earlier about what the house is what it's protecting against in that frame you know what it is this is it's a time shelter oh let's go dude that's cool man isn't a time that, shelter it's the it's it it's not foolproof of course but it is our best defense and our best way to maintain sovereignty of our own time what is yeah. our private time it's when we're at home it used to be anyway now you know working from okay but that's the idea of it it's a time shelter storm time shelter. shelter bomb shelter time shelter yeah i love it yeah you cracked it dude that's it well that is also a demonstration everyone of of the power of the simple word substitution of leaving a blank because that is where new thoughts occur and often they're very simple i mean the word time is is very simple but i think it suddenly that does give a whole level of of meaning to uh one's own private space and it links it it actually really links the renter and the owner and mm-hmm. i think you know it does it there's still a difference in those positions in society of course but that's that speaks to that mm-hmm. time shelter yeah yeah and that's a weird play on i think also the notion of the timeshare apartments which That is one of the strange, you know, because pre Airbnb, but the timeshare gimmicks are so, so very peculiar and they have gone so badly awry. And yet they're still being sold in a kind of a scam way. Some people they really do work for, but it ties in with the Hong Kong, you know, uh, cage home mm-hmm. idea of, of just time sharing day to day, you know, mm-hmm. and really that weird thing of passing through other bodies, you know, because yeah. it's not just other rooms. Yeah. You know? uh, Have you stayed in very many Airbnbs? No. And the the one time that I really officially used that brand was a little bit more than last year at this time when I had to get out of my uh, old place and I ha- hadn't moved in here yet. And that was a disaster. It was surreal and, and just, no, I wouldn't do it again. But there Rios are- and I have had some very good experiences with Airbnbs. Really? Uh, Yes, because when you're when you're well when we, when we went to Taos, for example, we stayed in an Airbnb, and it was in a very nice neighborhood uh, out in the desert. I would assume that there would be a difference in staying in an Airbnb out of necessity, and you know, especially if you're in 
like inner city Airbnbs. Uh, I have a friend who runs an Airbnb out of his uh, townhouse in Brooklyn, and he has some crazy stories about the people who who come through there. His what do you call them? Customers, tenants, renters? None of the above. I don't know. Um, yeah, guess. But that's not guests. Right. Guests. What a creepy word that is, dude. Yeah. <laughs> Your guess. It is. It's, so, it's so fucking creepy. <laughs> Actually, no matter no matter what context, yeah. the guess that is, guess is it's so but. creepy. <laughs> but yeah, we've had we've had there was one bad experience when we had a family gathering in um Riodoso, New Mexico. And it was Rios's entire family. It was about 30 people. And we rented a very big six bedroom cabin in Riodoso, which is a ski town. I don't know if you've ever been. It's it's a it's a nice enough I don't town. think I've been through there. I'm trying to picture if I have. It's you know, you know, alpine landscape and, and snow and, and that it was Christmas and uh Rios, beautiful country. It's a beautiful country. It, yeah, but uh Rios was the primary guest, and <laughs> and, guest and, of the guest. And you know, it was it was something. It was several thousand dollars a night, but her whole family chipped in, and you know, so it, it all came out to like a hundred, hundred and fifty bucks a person a night. Very cool cabin. But she got into a dispute with the the person who owned the house, the host, the host, uh, about a, a a bent lampshade and a television whose setting whose picture settings had been changed that she was very upset about, and uh, it became this whole nightmare where uh, Rios was having to deal with like Airbnb and to make sure that we could still be guests to other people in the future, because this host was an insane person, but uh, I got off on a tangent. I don't know. I think that we should probably move into our other segments here. Uh, Did you have any final thoughts? I think that we, we've, covered some uh, some of the important points and i think the fact that i would i would say that that one of the other aspects of this now that we've identified that the home residence as a time shelter i think it has a strange uh, uh there's a corollary here that you have to be able to get lost in your own house. Mm. And this is an interesting theme in literature. There, there are several examples that where a house, and we've talked about the Winchester mystery house, or, you know, the idea of a house being much bigger inside than, than it really appears from the outside. And I think that subjective experience um, is absolutely built into the satisfactory relationship with home architecture, that subjective experience. 
So as a kind of a wind-up note, I would say that one of the key requirements of architecture when it's really working, a diagnostic measure of how it's harmonizing with the individual and individuals involved is the degree to which it helps individual psyches navigate time. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, it's becomes the time shelter becoming a kind of time machine in uh, a, a positive, you know, proactive potential way. And whenever I think of time machine, I make it into what I call Trom machines. Trom, the, the German word for dream. And I think that's a nice way to think of one's own dwelling. And it ties in the last time we showed each other, you know, scenes of our totemic desk staging areas with magic mm -hmm, icons mm -hmm. around and you know we both fall it's it's so interesting it's exactly i'm right there with you you know i i see mm -hmm. it the, being part of the the wunderkammer the cabinet of curiosities actually working from there uh some people work from home we work from our cabinets of curiosity and i think that's the trauma machine idea, you know, of, of really needing not just architecture, but uh, what they say in New Guinea, the house tambourine, the spirit house idea. Mm. And I think that, that that idea of looking at architecture as spiritual expression, which ties in with cathedrals, think of the, the beautiful mosques that, I mean, it's just... Yeah, it, yeah. Oh, I love looking at those. I'll I'll go down a rabbit hole looking at looking. I at I think we could look at the spiritual uh, implications of architecture next time, you know, and and mm -hmm. move on to our other segments now. But that really is something remarkable because there are people who have can have no understanding of the historical tradition and still feel moved to speechlessness in the presence or, you know, of, of these great buildings around the world from entirely different cultures and mindsets. I think so. Do you want to hear about my post-apocalyptic? I do add terrorism. I'm, I'm first of all, just terrible. excited about uh, the title because you do some very interesting titles uh, in real time. Well, I thought of another title, so I'll give you two, and they're both relevant. The first title is I Just Want to Grill, and the second title is uh, Slide Tackle. These will both become relevant. Okay. Oh, wow. So we're, oh, wow. we're living in this world. We have a child being born into the world, and... You know, my spouse and I, in this case, are more traditional than this dystopian world that you've set up. So we're kind of like the Amish. We're treated like we're tolerated. Oh, okay. We're tolerated, but we're outside. You uh -huh. know, why don't they have buttons? What, what do they do? They 
we have exports to the major community, but we're seen as fringe. So my son is born in a kiddie pool at home with a midwife to avoid potential forced transition. He's still assigned because we have to go to the government office. He's still assigned a a, a non-gender by the state, by the brand, which I think is really cool. I think calling the state the brand is really cool. Uh, (laughs) But we raise him ostensibly as a boy. But the state brings me in a few times for questioning, namely his... uh, his focused interest in monster trucks and dromedary camels. They think those are very strange and very gendered things for him to be interested in because I tell him that uh, dromedary camels in particular are not as innocent as they look and they actually have very sharp teeth and have been known to behead people when they're left, uh, you know, uh, dehydrated or starving or what have you so essentially we attempt to in secret raise this kid as a boy enjoying all the things boys do like playing with dirt and mud and bugs and all that kind of stuff but eventually he develops an interest in soccer well sports are verboten in this dystopian place because number one they're competitive there are winners and losers and That's not very nice. And more importantly, they're split up by gender. And we don't want to have something that's just for boys or just for girls. Like It's got to all be mixed together. So I'm a dad. I'm cutting my lawn. I'm uh, I'm grilling. And my neighbors who are part of the, who are total brand toadies are taking deep whiffs of the black market steak that I'm grilling and saying, are you sure that that's cauliflower? You said that was soy. (laughs) Uh, But I think that, is that real meat? I don't think that's real. You're not supposed to have real meat. And so I have to meat eater. So I have to be very careful about that. But once my son becomes very interested in soccer, me and the other Amish esque people decide to set up tournaments and we set up uh boy and girl tournaments so automatically this is something that's flagged by the government so we have to retreat to different places to have these soccer tournaments and i thought like if this was a movie it would be so iconic and interesting because you would go to nat uh like to 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 um to public parks to have these you know national parks essentially to have to have these things so i was thinking of like really cool soccer tournaments at uh you know like white sands or the valley of fire right uh maybe like a cool one in you know yosemite or uh in the california redwoods like all these different places that are still protected and largely isolated to have these non-sanctioned soccer matches, which is where the the slide tackle thing would come from. But I thought it would be cool 
at the at the end of it to have a, a a crew of the brand come up and they're all kind of in like this i picture them in gimp snm gear you know okay. <laughs> and and they they're coming there to shut down these soccer matches and through the power of cinema and and storytelling magic we convince we we challenge them to a soccer match so oh, wow. picture picture white sands new mexico uh oh, it's, that's it's in, with with a group of 6 year old boys against gimp suit you know androgynous whatever's playing a soccer match for the uh for the agency and uh, uh sovereignty of our beliefs oh i love that i can see mm-hmm. it i think that's just fantastic that's hey, I, i'm glad i'm glad that's like haunting that. cinema that's haunting and and energizing i love it i love it mm-hmm. I just want to grill. I just want to (laughs) grill. Yeah, I think that slide tackle sounds really lovely. And uh, I think tackle is just a great word. Tackle box. And I love the expression wedding tackle. I think that's hilarious. (laughs) That always cracked me up. The first time I heard that was in, uh, did you ever watch the Austin Powers movies? Yes. Austin Powers, he talks about like, well, about me wedding tackle. Whenever he gets on well, the Aussies, you know, will will we'll throw because they love just figures of speech and particularly anyone's like that. Mm-hmm. I think it's I think that cracks me up, but I think I just want to grill is uh, is uh, and interest. I mean, I I here's another synchronicity. I just there's a page here about uh, mental uh, the treatment of the mentally ill. And it goes back to the Inquisition and grilling people literally, you know, yeah. Yeah. people hanging yeah. and stuff. And I thought, oh, I, mean, I just came across that a couple of minutes ago. And I think that's, that's yeah, it's kind of interesting when you think about, you know, detectives grilling a suspect. Yeah, exactly. Where does that come from? Where does yeah. that come from? <laughs> well, it, it it actually goes, the, you know, a strange way that, that, um, the, the idea of barbecuing being grilling is is really uh, completely unrelated to that in a way, you know. Mm-hmm. It comes well after the fact. But uh, no, I like. I just want to grill. I think that that's. Uh, I, I I liked every aspect about it, but that you last... can see the poster, right? You can see the White Sands poster and like a kid with a soccer ball and like some strange gimp with a gas mask on. Because by the way, they're all they're all terrified of of diseases, of course, right? So right. they're 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 these kind of bug people that we speak of, just imagined out to the nth degree, you know, um, like a kid playing soccer with somebody in a leather a tight leather suit and a gas mask in white sands. That is a compelling image. I would watch that movie. Oh, I would too. I th- I can see it. I can see a beautiful just panoramic thing uh, just absolutely fabulous and a mm-hmm. little bit of mirage you know mm-hmm. a little bit of heat mm-hmm. shimmer yeah 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 the heat shimmer would be good. oh man soccer soccer is a kind of uh a, a great sort of conflicting image of this sort of globalist sport you know like if there's if there's a world sport it's soccer 
you know, and transposed onto it because America, you think baseball, you think football, uh, you don't necessarily think soccer, but I, I, I would, I would like to have it be soccer in this alley. Oh, I think it's, it, yeah, it's the world, it's the world game. I mean, that, that's what mm-hmm. they call it. I'm really looking, I wish Aztec ball game, you know, the ball game. Yeah. Which, yeah. You know, yeah, with the, with the, with the kind of uh, perpendicular hoop. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Exactly, yeah, and and they they could only hit the ball with their hips, in their elbows or just their hips. I think they could... as far as far as I remember, it was just their hips. You might be yeah, right because it was it, obviously a low scoring game. And I think yeah. if anybody did score a goal, they could go in into the audience and, re- and just take whatever they wanted from someone. They could, they could, but they also were sacrificed if they won. That was the tr- which might have been why it was a hip game. I can see this now. They're saying whoever wins gets to be sacrificed. They're like, okay, cool. What if it's, <laughs> what if I can only score by hitting the ball with my dick into, <laughs> into the, hoop? Yeah. you know, uh, and they're like, well, whoa. that sounds impossible. And they're like, oh, well, I mean, you know, let's keep the game going. <laughs> let's keep the game going. We're on day 49 of this game. <laughs> <laughs> oh god that see that's a that's a great idea for a strange comedy series right there but mm-hmm. epic in that sort of ridley scott sort of way but mm-hmm. and that's an odd idea like an epic ridley scott comedy based on the ball game you know mm-hmm. and it yeah. just it never quite ends that's a really that's a really postmodern idea yeah where you have to make it seem like you're trying to win but you really don't want that ball to go in that hoop. Yeah. So you hit it with your hip. Boom. It hits the wall, ricochets, hits the rim, and then goes through. And you're like, oh, no. Oh, fuck. I have intensely screwed up. Wow. Well, that makes thinking about sort of the architecture of ball courts in the great, you know, Mexican cities. That makes me think again of Michael Heiser's city. And uh, I've got I found some more notes that I made about that. I think next week we should revisit because some of the that raises a lot of questions about numbers of people, the sense of uh, time when you're walking around and also really the, the strange sense of pre-designed, you know, uh, prefabricated ruins. Uh, yep. And also the idea of uh, a city without purpose, pure aesthetics, no functionality whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that's... Uh, all right, well, we'll take that up. Are we ready for the tool? I was about to say, yeah. Hit me with okay, the tool. I'm well, still listening. I'm just going to head out real quick, but I'm still listening. Okay, I've got two. I've got two. I was, uh, in addition to Boulder City being a great uh, Route 66 town, or maybe not in addition to, but because of, it's got some great vintage motels. And even the ones that aren't still functioning, uh, they have great signs. So the neon is fascinating to me. I love, and obviously Vegas has a lot of uh, great, great old neon and the neon uh, museum here is fantastic. But I was down in Boulder City shooting 
some of the old motel signage in the rain thinking about neon and if you google and spend just a few moments on the discovery of neon one of the noble gases two scientists two british scientists discovered the in the near the end of the 19th century it's absolutely fascinating to me how they discovered neon the experimental process that they used because when you read the description just on wikipedia it will make absolutely total sense to you and you'll think oh okay but i have to admit i would never in a million years have gone through the thought process that would have arrived at the very practically achievable experimental situation that they were involved in. And that is just one chemical element, one of millions of discoveries that have been made. And I think about this in terms of the learning part of my memory and consciousness book. And I'm continually astonished by little glimpses because you can't stand too much because it's overwhelming of what it has taken the human species to learn what we all take entirely for granted may have no understanding about today even but is the culmination of thought processes labor risk and in many cases death that the only possible attitude I think we can have is just one of sheer gratefulness, you know, beyond gratitude, just deep gratefulness. And every once in a while that really hits me. And I think that that the way this tool works is to just take anything. I mean, for me, it was just thinking about neon. I love neon. I thought I knew something about it. I did five minutes of research and it, was again one of those threads that connects to the entire tapestry of human knowledge. My other tool is this. Boulder City is special. It has some very peculiar convergencies of history, architecture, and just mood and feel that maybe not every town has. But I've had this experience many times, but there is a particular spot, River Mountain Avenue. I love the River Mountains are actually, that's the name of the mountains right behind me. But River Mountain, I love that idea. That is just like a beautiful, <laughs> you know, mushy together. And River Mountain Avenue delivers on that because within a space of just a few minutes in a car, you pass between through many, many different worlds. The architectural style changes. There's a sudden opening of desert that is right out of many David Lynch uh, films, certainly shots. And you can't believe, you wouldn't have any idea where you are. Mm -hmm. And the experience I have there is something I can replicate and count on, which is very fortunate because it helps me articulate something that I think many people have this experience. 
but it is very hard to put words to. But for me, a River Mountain Avenue moment is when in totally real time, I have an absolute split screen of conscious experience, simultaneous reassuring familiarity, a grasp of reality and location that is non-alienating, okay? Reassuring familiarity, simultaneously split screen with a completely pervasive sense of the peculiar, Mm-hmm. Okay. It is absolutely right. And I can maintain focus on the, and it gives me, I can't take it very long. I can handle about 15 minutes alone on River Mountain Avenue when this is going on. But the the harmonic that that sets up, I'm able to do so much more with my mind immediately thereafter. I usually go out and start photographing or writing notes or I head home immediately and work on something. No, because my know my mind is just absolutely energized. And I think that uh, whenever you can try to find and and just see the preciousness of that experience, because the alienating, the strange part is, what I've called the peculiar is, is disturbing. You know, it can be a little bit kind of cool and edgy, but the conflict between that, between this sense of, oh, do I really belong here? Have I wandered into the twilight zone? And then having immediately with that, a very clear sense of familiarity. But here's also, here's what finishes off the tool. I've been thinking about the word peculiar, and I really like it. I'm starting to use it more and more. I I prefer it to, in my, what I'm trying to mean it to mean, uh, as opposed to the bizarre or weird uh, or alien. I, mm-hmm. It just has mm-hmm. the right connotative weight yeah. and density. And so I renewed my sense of the definition. It actually, it it comes from the Greek. It comes from cattle. Mm. And in the sense of private property. Mm -hmm. Now, isn't that interesting? That's really, so what is peculiar is one's own. So we get this, you know, the question back to the shelter idea. Is it the shelter of what you're protecting? Or is it in terms of what you're, what's opposing you, what you're trying to keep out? So private property, and it's only you know pretty late in late in the 17th century that it becomes associated with the strange, where it's it's what is not your private property. Mm-hmm. So I think that whole way of thinking of the tool is investigate things that seem very simple you take for granted, and these what I'm calling River Mountain Avenue moments of real dissonance between total familiarity and a s- uncanny sense of the peculiar. <laughs> I think it yeah. deserves a little bit of redundancy there. Journal those, and they will reveal some interesting uh, associative patterns and maybe, well, they'll certainly energize you. I find they do me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that, 
if there's one thing that I've gotten from this show, and there are many more than one thing that I've gotten from it, it is to just wonder how things work. When thing when I get passed by a milk truck on the road, I wonder what's what are all those knobs and levers for on the milk right. truck? You know, just just yeah. a kind of. By the way, do you want to hear the Noble Gases song that's stuck in my head since childhood? That, by the way, I will mention. I have no recollection of where I learned this song, and a lot of the the words are missing. But this might be very interesting, especially in terms of your uh, your earworm talk from last time about right. writing writing down songs that pop into your head. Yeah. So there was a there was a Noble Gases song, um, and it went like this: Noble Gases, na na na. Helium, neon, and argon. Da, 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 da. What's well, kind of like old McDonald, right? Da, 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 da. Krypton, xenon, and radon. Then organesson. <laughs> At the end, I have no idea where that's from, but it's stuck in my head. So I know the noble gases from that song. <laughs> well, see, this is, this is, you know, all our associations, all what we think of as memories are really vibrating mm-hmm. waves of, of incredibly complex associative patterns. I wouldn't be able to name those if you just asked me, like, what right. are the noble gases? I wouldn't know. But if you said, what's the noble gases song? I'd say, helium, neon, argon, krypton, xenon, radon, organesson. You know what I mean? Like, I would... Yeah, no, exactly. In those terms, you know what I mean? I understand exactly. You can't extract that knowledge or abstract it from the framework or context in which you you learned it. Mm -hmm. And that song is essential to that. And that song has a context and a moment in life and a physical location where you learn it. And it's Mm -hmm. really quite rooted in, in or nested in a really complex uh a jigsaw mosaic of of associations all by of the way ended on each other speaking of uh vegas and neon and all that uh rios and i will be there in the middle of may oh far out, far out on the, on the far ground on the oh, that's... Gonna, our, our plan is to go to uh the meow wolf in Las Vegas at Area 15 um, on Thursday. Okay. Fri- Friday, we're going to hit the Valley of Fire. We're, we're going to hike that. Saturday is the concert at the uh, at the fairgrounds. And then we, we leave on Sunday. So if you're around, if you want to get dinner or something. Oh, look, of course. No, I am going to be around. And I, I have some... I have some possible modifications to that 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 plan. I'm all ears. Uh, because the Valley of Fire is this very, very spiritual place. I, I you know completely recommend it. Absolutely. It is just phenomenally beautiful. It's it's actually not that easy uh to really uh to hike around. In, unless right. you really go out for longer, whereas around where I am, there are there are just two off the top phenomenal hikes to go mm-hmm. to, and they're very close to me, and they really are just 
and they involve um, some beautiful canyon stuff, uh, the the river. So I, I have a few suggestions about that. But yeah, I know send I'm them, send my about way. that. Send them my way. We're 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 going to be in on the. We get in on. I want to say the eleventh of May. So there is time to amend our itinerary. We'll have a car, of course, and all that kind of stuff. And I would love to see you. So uh, oh, look, of course, you know, you know of course, if, of course, if we of course. can if we can link up, whether that's in Vegas or on these hikes or or whatever suggestions you might have. Oh, you got to come out to the house. Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, I mean, you got to come visit. Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, I, I, yeah, I think that's going to be fantastic. We'll, we'll work out a sensational plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, we will. Mm-hmm. We will. Cool. All right. What, what is your tip for today? Okay. Well, um, I decided to put up some of my new artwork, refresh my, uh, my, uh, whole scene. And, uh, I rediscovered the challenge of hanging pictures on one's own. And that then raises a very architectural, structural question of the whole idea of levels, you know? Mm -hmm. And you start looking around and you realize how relative that is. I mean, very quickly, things are not perfectly level if you're really going to be a stickler about it. And that's not necessarily a good thing to be. And it's on that level that you really start to appreciate precision. And I think that that, again, is one thing that is really taken entirely for granted. And I think a lot of uh, so-called progressive people who are against, well, they against certain kinds of, of precision of structure. I, I really wonder, I think they're taking a lot of that for granted because it's really cool when things are level. But I realize that you have to come to some sort of uh, reasonable compromise with your situation. And that experience of hanging a fair number of pictures, really redoing all of the art direction, that was very therapeutic for me because I had to really work through some frustration. But it's a great way to find a harmonic balance with some practical realities around you in terms of other levels, you know, and, and how much precision are you really needing? You know, how much frustration are you really willing to go through? Is it ever going to be perfect? No. Is it going to, you know, and you suddenly adjust to a lot of things that I think are really important to do. So it ties into having a very, I mean, that's a metaphor that we can apply to a lot of things in life, but it was really helpful for me to do deal with it very physically, you know, uh, with hammer and nail and really, you know, I, you know, you, it's, you can do that in your head about things. Oh, how much precision do I want to have in this piece of writing or how, you know, how tough ass am I going to be about this? And am I going to be a little bit loose here and that, but it's not so good in the head. It's really something you have to walk around in. And that ties, I think, our architecture theme back to, you know, around that we need to be inside it. We need that prepositional metaphoric container 
mm-hmm. sense, that shelter for it to really make sense. And from that basis, then we can have metaphors about structure. You know, they mm-hmm. begin to, to have some chance of, of, we can talk about the structure of a novel. It's a mm-hmm. lot harder to talk about the structure of a novel when you're camped out in, in nowhere with no, nothing, no roof over your head, you know? That becomes harder. So you need that basis of, of real, not just the literal roof, as important and precious as that may be, but the, the, the meaty material sense of structure to then create the possibility of all the other notions of structure that we have. I like that. I like that. So <clears throat> what comes to mind when you're talking about this and it, you know, as you know, and as I've said on this show numerous times, you are one of my favorite novelists, certainly my favorite living novelist, and you're not interested in novels anymore. You're not interested in doing that. Is there something in your tip that could be related back to your position on novel writing? Because this is part of this is kind of my, you know, Lost Explorers is, you know, it's, you know, it's cool. And we talk about all this kind of stuff, but I'm always, I'm always trying to poke and prod and get you yeah. back into writing. And uh, I think you just said some really interesting, perhaps revealing things about your, about your relationship to writing and the novel and the structure of it and the relationship between being tight ass and loose and all this kind of stuff. What do you think about what I'm saying? I'm trying to, I'm trying to poke you here. I'm trying to poke. Yeah, you no, you're it. doing a good job at it. Well, I, I think there are a couple of things is that uh, I I'm struggling with a new, a new format. I've always been interested in, in, in form and the possibility of experimentation and how experimentation has worked in the visual arts and music. And I was interested in how it was going in writing, but I thought it it kind of it got a little bit sterile uh, and, mm-hmm. and lost mm-hmm. the ancient sense of, of storytelling magic in a straightforward sort of way. Uh, but I really am very interested. I don't use these all the time, but I, I have them close mm-hmm. to hand. I only use about mm-hmm. five or six different sort of means of uh, recording thoughts. But the notion of kind of these very small framed index cards and a kind of malarial or kaleidoscopic flow of idea drama, scenario, possibility. I love that. Mm-hmm. And I find that that uh, what I do, I used to have uh, a long, long time ago, I found, you know, the, the TV show Kung Fu with David. Mm-hmm. With David Carradine, yeah. I had a classic Kung Fu uh-huh. lunchbox. And I started putting note cards in there 
And I was deep into the study of the fragment. I was taking this a great class with this crazy French teacher who had a huge nose and kind of a deformed body, like a badly made sort of mm-hmm. large mm-hmm. sock puppet made of hay. Yeah. The sounds he, French, yeah. He was very animated, and he got us reading Novalis and Kafka and uh, Guy Debord and just a whole lot of people. But I started putting my index cards for the thesis that I was going to write for him into the Kung Fu lunchbox. And at one point, the girlfriend heaved it into the lake and it was lost. <laughs> and I, had, I tried to recall these frantically written, but really loved index card entries. But anyway, I have new ones and I, I, I only, it's just getting started, but I number the index cards so I could put, find an order to them, but also um, they can just be there, uh, you know, for whenever. And there's a lot of, I mean, centipede people. I'm not sure what I, you know, what I'm really talking. Dude, about. No, you, you, you're cracking it open because you said it when you said the tight ass versus the loose the index cards in the Kung Fu lunchbox first and the coffee can that you just showed me, uh, you have to, it has to feel like a, like an organic rhythmic, uh, libidinal practice. And you're, you're surrounded by this idea that, that it's a sterile rote, you know, these are the tropes that you follow if you want to be the best seller and all this kind of stuff. And I'm telling you, I'm back to writing, writing. Like I love the blowgun stuff. I love all of your drumming and your music and your spoken word and all that kind of stuff. But you're, you're going to come back. You're going to come back. Oh, look, I haven't really, you know, left. I, 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 I keep, uh, well, I keep, you know, creating a lot of, 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 of words. I think that the, the memory and consciousness book is going to come together in this kind of kaleidoscopic, mm-hmm. um, malarial fever sort of, uh, jigsaw mosaic way. And in the process, that's going to help finish off the big novel of, of, uh, set in the Pacific Islands. It's a phantom mm-hmm. anthropology. It's not just a novel. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's the thing too. But do you think about like a like the size of Brave New World or 1984? Uh, you know, a kind of fifty thousand word satire called the brand that's about the imaginative challenge that you gave me, written by Chris Sacknessum. That would be huge. Very controversial. But but huge. Yeah, it would be rather yeah. Like your your voice your voice right now, and this is gonna sound more serious than I mean it, but your voice right now, your literary voice, uh, which I think is where your your sharpest insights and talent and 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 where just where you are meant to be, uh, I think you are needed now more than ever, no matter what 
you know, pop culture might say about that, because I think you're a genius. I think you're the best writer who's alive right now. And I think that your life experience and your ability to uh, distill that into extremely readable prose that even, you know, everyone from, you know, your MFA student to your fucking moron would read a Chris Sackness and piece and be like, that's really fucking good. You have all these uh, uh, things going for you, man. And the world needs Chris books. I really now. appreciate hearing that from you, David. Uh, I really do. I, 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 I'm going to say I, I, that got through. I, I, I appreciate a good blowgun shot and i think that <laughs> really had some some energy to it you know i cool well 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 fired cool man cool cool i'll get off my soapbox now and <laughs> we can go no, into the I, I, I think that was i i think i needed to hear that and uh mm -hmm. that was a sermon well delivered you know mm -hmm. god if that's that's what we that's a beautiful performance of a deep tip of of when you when you have something you need to say it's really important to say it fully and you've got a beautiful way of of expressing uh you gotta yourself. say it with your chest you gotta say it with your chest yeah, yeah yeah no i i really appreciate that that really got through in a way that that i mean it's uh i'm gonna take that really to heart cool i'm glad to hear that have you been dreaming I have, and I, I've got two levels of this. Uh, the first one just struck me so funny. I think I almost woke up from it. It's, uh, and, and I think it will tickle you <laughs> because it's an extension of uh, some of the COVID culture creeping into dream life. Uh, I, I've been expecting a little bit more than has. I don't know. I was going to ask you about that, how much COVID has sort of impacted dream life. But in, in the first dream that really came to mind is that, and it was based on some, uh, the, some real noticings of, of being on campus the other day, where it seems like we're in a new mask phase. I noticed several uh, women, for instance, who were, were, really going back to the designer masks outdoors. Mm. Uh, two of them actually had masks that more or less uh, matched their outfits. So mm. it's really become a fashion thing. Mm -hmm. And so in my dream, uh, kind of taking that on board, because I was surprised to see, you know, it was such a lovely day the other day, and then it got really dramatically difficult I thought there'd be people kind of celebrating not having masks, but no. But in my dream, this new mask thing has become so prominent and intense that all of the super woke people who want to be recognized on site have had to add another fashion uh, attachment, accoutrement, uh, and they all have the you can have different colors they're all brightly colored though plastic fly swatters and 
somehow in the dream that made just beautiful sense of, <laughs> you know, of, and they, they had little wrist attachments. So people had these fly swatters that they could, and that was a signal of uh, outward signal of uh, extreme mm. um, woke loyalty mm-hmm. and I, that tickled me in my in my dreams so I, I like I, the fly swatter as a as a metaphor for that kind of thing because the fly swatter is so funny because flies are just you know they're yeah. an, they're, they're an ambient impossible thing to to get rid of the idea of having a fly swatter outside is ridiculous it's it's silly and but as that's, what, that's what the masks anything. are. That's what the masks are too. Yeah. Like, as well, if you exactly. as if you as if you're gonna stop it from getting in there if it really wants to get in there. Exactly. And I think that in that that's what kind of the dream did. It found that uh, that uh, an analogy for yeah. in, in the same kind of personal register that mm-hmm. that it just as ridiculous as the masks outside and i i you know then they looked cool though these brightly colored fly swatters that just mm-hmm. were sort of perfectly silly and actually i think a great symbol mm-hmm. for for uh for what's going that on you're in constant opposition with nature yeah <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes, exactly. You know, talk about the house is time sheltered. Now you're like out and you need shelter from everything, from mm-hmm. disease, from ideologies that aren't yours, from mm-hmm. you know people who, you know, don't like mermaids or, you know, hippopotami <laughs> or whatever. Oh, on it goes. Okay, so my a, second dream. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mentioned this because... Uh, I think it says something really important about how architecture affects us in very deep ways. And it also, I think, connects, um, because I do journal my dreams so closely, I'm able to just track when things influence, you know, when you experience something in waking life and how long, you know, thereafter do you dream it. I just read i've gone through twin peaks the return twice now just to kind of make sure i and i think i'll leave that alone for some time but i love one of the things i love about lynch is his beautiful architectural sense of Mm -hmm. of scenes they're just absolutely sensational and i think that had an enormous effect on me because in this one dream i found uh, myself and uh, a girlfriend figure who kind of kept interchanging. Uh, we met a very strange individual dude in this empty but sprawling estate in Missouri. And uh, a flood was coming and the creek was rising. And mm-hmm. all of the architectural touches were directly vibrating with Lynchian aesthetics. And it was amazing to me how fully and things that weren't, I wasn't, in other words, borrowing scenes of his, but I could feel the same kind of resonance as if, you know, I, I was set designing the dream based on that as an influence. So not a direct copy at all, but an incredible uh, vitalizing of of minute details directly because of uh, 
his cinematic influence. And I, that reminds me again of how deep the influence of TV and movies have been on our consciousness. I don't think we can underestimate that at all. Um, But then I had a really great sex dream about my favorite high school girlfriend who I called Suze, Susie Q. And she had, uh, she had a wonderful, she was so straightforward sometimes. She had a desire to learn how to give the ultimate hand job. Mm. And her reasoning for this, not that she was uninterested in any other acts at all, but her reasoning was that Naomi McGuire was known to give the best head. And Naomi McGuire, try to picture this in your mind. She was half Hawaiian, as in kind of a Tahitian beauty, and then half Irish of the best of the Irish women, the fiery kind of almost Welsh Irish woman. She was intense. And so Suze was... uh, wanting to to master the hand job as a corner that 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 bit of the market yeah Yeah. exactly and so that was our initial meeting and i said well i can help with that (laughs) dream uh she was back alive and it was just a fabulous moment where lust and great innocent joy mingles Mm -hmm. and She's on top looking down at me. And as she climaxes, she became this beautiful, very, very sculptural, but just perfectly balanced, yellow going green leaved spring tree, mm-hmm. like in a market square in a town like Boulder City, with the sun coming through and the sky just a perfect gentle blue, not like a harsh sort of Mexican desert or Nevada desert summer, you know, angry blue and not a soft Navajo cornflower blue either. Just a blue like in the postcard picture you sent me of the bank in Oklahoma City, that 70s Kodak moment uh, highway, you know, postcard color blue. And it was this lovely sense of serene order arising from just this hot and very pure raw sex blossoming into something good in a much bigger sense than just personal satisfaction. And I woke up feeling so energized. I thought, yeah. And as if her spirit really had been with me, you know, unquestionably. We'll end it there.